I am so glad you're here this morning. I am so glad that we have a chance to look at God's uh, <clears throat> Word together and that there has been uh, good teaching of God's Word throughout uh, our church, through the children's program, through uh, adults and everything. That's just, that's just a blessing. Amen? And uh, <clears throat> I want us to start our morning off thinking about this. Men have wrestled for ages with the question of where is history going? Is there a purpose, a goal, or a culmination to history? Or is it just a bunch of meaningless sunrises and sunsets swiftly flowing through the years leading to nowhere? The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre expressed his hopeless view of history or of living in his novel Nausea. I thought that was a really appropriate title for a novel. He says this, uh, one of his characters is saying this in the, in, the, in the novel, I was just thinking, <clears throat> I tell him laughing, that here we sit, all of us eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence, and really there is nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. What sadness that is. However, the Bible very clearly reveals a different perspective. There is a reason to exist. There is a reason to not view life as a meaningless series of swiftly flowing years leading nowhere. As we continue our series in Acts, we come to a place where Paul is going to preach a sermon that will help us see that Jesus Christ is the point of all history. He is going to show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that gives history, history purpose and value. This will be the fourth gospel sermon we have encountered in Acts. <clears throat> the content is very similar to the previous three, and I do have a confession to make this morning. I had the thought cross my mind uh, that taking time to look at another similar gospel sermon would cause everybody out here, that includes all of you, okay, to think, yep, we just heard that two or three weeks ago. Because Luke continually writes over and over the gospel. Then I remembered something. There should be nothing more exciting, more worthy of being preached from the pulpit than the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how many times we hear it. I already knew that, but sometimes even pastors lose sight of the wonder and privilege of being able to preach the gospel every chance we get. We need to have the gospel preached to us day in and day out. This sermon of Paul's was preached at a synagogue in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, this is not the same Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their uh, missionary. There were more than there was more cities uh, named Antioch than just that one. And so Paul's intent is to show that the Jews in this synagogue that Jesus was and is their promised Messiah, and therefore the only person who can save them from their sin. And in showing this, Paul also shows us that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, gives all of human history meaning and purpose. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you this morning and we thank you so much for the opportunity you give us to study your word. Lord God, I pray that our hearts would be challenged, that our minds would be open, and that we would uh, come to a point where we just rejoice in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen. So, what I want to do this morning 
is have everybody turn to Acts 13, Acts 13, which is on page 1172, and we're going to read verses 14 through 22, Acts 13, verses 14 through 22, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any words of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years and After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And when they had asked for a king, and God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. And what we find out in in these verses is Jesus is the point of history. Now we have to understand something that uh, Paul is talking to a Jewish synagogue, in a Jewish synagogue. He's talking to Jewish people. He's going to review their history. And he does not go into much detail because he assumes, which rightly so, that they all know the history, their history. And what he's going to show them now is history is going somewhere, and every Jew and Gentile uh, God-fearer in Paul's audience knew where that history was going according to their history And that means that the history, their history was a culmination in the coming of the kingdom and their Messiah. That was, in the Jewish mind, the culmination of history. And Paul is going to point them that Jesus is the point of that culmination. Man's fellowship with God, shattered by the fall, would be restored when Messiah came and delivered men from the bondage of sin. History would resolve itself in the redeemed being back in full fellowship with God and giving Him glory. And Paul wanted to show those listening to his sermon that Jesus was this Messiah, that he was the one that was going to bring all the redeemed back, that he was going to repair the relationship with God. He wanted to show them that, his, that Jesus' incarnation, his sacrificial death, his second coming to set up his earthly millennial reign and his eternal rule over the new heavens and new earth is the point and the climax of their history and who else's history? Ours. Paul uses a brief history, as I said, of, Jewish, of the Jewish people to reveal how God uses all of history to point to His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to uh, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, just before 17, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He says, I'm going to tell you something. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He sovereignly chose Abraham and his descendants to be the fathers of a new nation. He chose them. And as we look at, uh, I want, to, want you to see that in Genesis chapter 13. Turn all the way back in your Bibles, in your pew Bibles, it's on page 12, to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, who was, later on his name would be changed to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at the or at your, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And what we see in that passage is that God uh, sovereignly chose Abraham for no reason for Abraham. He wasn't extra special righteous. He wasn't an extra special man. God just, in his sovereignty, chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make a new nation of you, and I promise this to you. So that's what Paul is saying there as he, in verse 17, as he begins the review of their history, and then he says in, ver- in the last part of verse 17, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And God protected his chosen people. And uh, he's saying the next thing, he says, not only did he uh, select Abram, and not only did he promise them, but he says, he, even after 400 years of slavery, that God protected his chosen people and made them a great nation in captivity. They went as 70 people and they came out as millions. And we see here in verse in Deuteronomy, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you uh, from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh Egypt. And we see that uh, all the people sitting in front of Paul right now would have reflected on passages like this. They would have reflected back on what the Scriptures said in their history about how God chose them to be a nation and protected His people and grew them to be a nation in captivity. God cared for the nation for a period of 40 years and He put up with them in the wilderness. Look at verse 18 as He continues. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Nehemiah reflects on this uh, wilderness uh, and how they were rebelled. Take a look at Nehemiah uh, chapter uh, 9. It says, But they, our fathers, acted, and this is Nehemiah writing, presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. And they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened, that's the nation, their neck, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and who did not forsake, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought you out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and did not depart from them day or the pillar of uh, fire by night. He says, even when they, in the 40 years of wandering the wilderness, God was protecting, God was directing their history to make sure that his history, what he needed to happen, everything pointing to Jesus Christ, and it started all the way back in the Old Testament. God cared for his people in spite of the rebellion, enduring their sin because they had a key role to play in his plan for history. And then look at verses 19 through 20, the first part of 20. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And what he's saying here is that God brought the next generation of Israel to the promised land. Throughout that entire people uh, period, God showed his power, care, and faithfulness towards Israel for 450 years. After they took possession of the land, the people of Israel continued to be unfaithful with God. 
and God continued to be faithful with them. And when they were oppressed, He gave them the judges. And we see that in verse 20, the last part. <clears throat> and He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then because of their lack of trust in God, okay, <clears throat> they desired, we find in 1 Samuel, to be just like the other nations. And look what He says in verse 21 as he reviews their history. Then they asked for a king, and God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. They didn't trust God to be their leader. They wanted a king. God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And he gave them Saul. Saul did not, was not a good king. Saul was a selfish king. Saul was a disobedient king. He reigned for 40 years, and God removed him. And that's what he says in verse 22. Look at verse 22 as he continues down through their history. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. After God removed Saul from his throne because of rebellion, he raised up David to be their king. But unlike Saul, David loved God and was an obedient king. In fact, he says that David was a man after his own heart. Now, we've got to understand something. How many of you know David's past? All the people in, in Jerusalem, all the people in the synagogue at that point in time would, re would be reflecting on all this history. They knew what the Scripture said. We're just having touch points here and there to kind of bring us into what he's saying in a Jewish synagogue. And he's saying, David was a man after my own heart, but we understand that David was a coward. David numbered his army when he shouldn't have. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. David, how, you're looking at how in the world could David be after, uh, a man after his own heart? Well, when you start, stop and think about it, a man, a man after God's own heart is not a perfect man. Amen? Do we want to have the heart of Christ? Do we want to have the heart, a heart that, says, that God looks at us and says that our hearts desire Him to be obedient to Him. But how many of us here this morning understand very, very intimately how much we fall and how much we fail? But here we understand that a perfect man, is, a man or a woman after God's own heart is not a perfect man. It is a man or a woman who sees their sin for what it, for what it is, grieves because of it, and humbly repents of it, which David did every single time. Amen? What confidence that gives us. How many times do we need that kind of forgiveness in our lives? How many times do we understand that we sin and we turn our backs and sometimes it's the same stuff over and over and over? But we can still be, have a heart that desires God like David did. Amen? As we move down through this history that Paul is writing, verse 23 is a key verse. It says, Of this man's offspring, uh, God brought Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised all those Paul was speaking to would have understood that Paul's historical review was meant to show that all of their history pointed them to the fact that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah who had come through the kingly line of David, which we find there in verse 23. Verse 23 ties together Paul's point together. Historically, Jesus was the uh, promised offspring of David, the Messiah. Prophetically, he was one whom, according to God's promise, brought Israel a Savior. And that's what it says there. Take a look. Of this uh, man's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as what? As He promised. Where did He promise that? Where did He promise that? In the Old Testament. 
And everybody in this audience would have, it's hard for us to sometimes grasp a hold of this because we don't have that historical background, but everybody in that synagogue audience would have looked back and, and understood the prophecies that pointed everybody to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. The first prophecy Paul mentions, and now he's going to move from the historical uh, line. It says this is Jesus is the Messiah because he, you can see how God protected the line of David and brought everything up in history to be to David and how David brought forth this, this uh, through David's line, this man comes as prophesied, as promised. Now let's take a look at some prophecies that they would have looked at. Let's look at verses 24 and 25 first. Before his coming, John had promised, and we're looking at prophecies now. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And Paul is uh, reminding them uh, what they understood about the prophecy here. And in two places, I want you to look at it in Isaiah chapter 40. This is long before uh, Jesus ever came on the scene. And it says here, the voice cries in the wilderness, uh, before John the Baptist, excuse me, came on scene. The voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A voice cries where? In the wilderness. Where did John the Baptist herald the coming of Jesus Christ? In the desert. And then we also see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send my messenger. Who was that messenger? John the Baptist. And it was prophesied that a messenger would come to Jesus, would come uh, to Jerusalem. A messenger would herald the coming of, the, of Jesus Christ before Jesus was ever known on the scene. And we see that God <clears throat> fulfilled that prophecy through John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. Both of these prophecies were fulfilled in the John the Baptist who called upon the people of Israel to repent. And I want you to take a look at John chapter 1, verse 29. And we're talking now, we're back up to the time period when John the Baptist uh, was actually doing and being the messenger. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. The next day he is John the Baptist. Saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was he telling the Jewish folks in the synagogue? That Jesus is the Messiah. That John the Baptist was his herald. And then we also see it again in John 1.36. And he looked, and this is John the Baptist is the he, at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold what? Again, the Lamb of God. Prophecy. Predicted in, in Malachi and Isaiah, coming true in John, thousands of years later. And Jesus is the focal point of this. Jesus is the focal point of not only history, but Jesus is the focal point of all the prophecy that we find in the Bible. All of Paul's audience would have understood his point. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter 3. The second prophecy we find in verses 26 through 29. Look at it in verse 26. Brothers, he's going to pause here. He want, he's going to get their attention again. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of his salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of prophets which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Again, he's referring to a second prophecy. Those listening to Paul would have uh, known the prophecies that pointed to the cross. So Paul doesn't list them here. But I want to want to show you a couple of these things. Because when you see the word tree, take a look at verse 29. They took him down from the tree. What is the tree? So we, don't, so we all understand. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. They took him down from the tree. And I want you to see how... This is just amazing prophecy how it points to Jesus Christ. Psalm 109.25 I'm an object of scorn. My accusers, when they see me, they wag their head. Alright? And then we see in Matthew 27.39 during his crucifixion and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads. The psalmist predicted this would happen thousands of years before. And then we also see uh, that his executioners would divide his, divide his clothing among them. This is what would be going through the Jewish uh, audience. They would have understood this. And that's why Paul didn't list these, but for our, for our own background. Psalm twenty two eighteen, the psalmist says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then we also see now in John chapter 19, verses 23 through 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who shall, whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots, so the soldiers did these things. Again, prophecy pointing to whom? Jesus Christ thousands of years, and we see that prophecy being fulfilled in Matthew thousands of years later. Then we also see in Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me the sour wine to drink. And then we see in Matthew 27, 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would what? He would not drink it. Again, we see prophecy being fulfilled these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are amazing. There are a hundred more like it throughout the Old Testament. But the one that really catches my attention is the fact that in the Old Testament, death by crucifixion had not been invented yet. Death by crucifixion had not been, invent had not been invented yet. But if you go back, and we don't have time to read them today, but if you go back to Psalm 22, you can write these down. Psalm 22 and Numbers chapter 21, written thousands of years before Jesus was hung on the cross, crucifixion is portrayed, even though it hadn't been invented yet. It wasn't going to be invented for over a thousand years. The third reference here, that's just prophecy about uh, the crucifixion. The third reference uh, to prophecy in Paul's sermon here, look at the last half of verse 29. And they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The third reference to a prophecy here is this, uh, as in the sermon is to Christ's burial. Victims of crucifixion uh, uh, was commonly, the victims of crucifixion, those who died on the cross, were, com were thrown on a normal basis into a common grave. There, the, the, this, that type of execution, we have to understand, was reserved for the lowest of low. Crucifixion was a horrid way of making a spectacle of somebody, and only the lowest of low would ever be crucified. And what we have here uh, is the normal uh, process was what? Crucify them and throw them where? In a common grave. All right? But here we find that, uh, according to Paul, that they laid him where? In a tomb. 
And look at what we have in, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. This prophecy of uh, Isaiah is an antithetical statement uh, stating, first, uh, they made his grave. That was the intent of the guards. That was the intent of the people who crucified him. They were going to make him, uh, leave him a grave, put him in a grave with the wicked. But the intent of God, the divine intent, was for him to be laid with where? With the rich man. And where did Jesus go? He didn't, wasn't thrown in a common grave. He was thrown where? Or where was he taken? Not thrown. Where was he taken? Into a rich man's grave. And Paul saved the most amazing prophecy in his final example, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecies found in the Old Testament. And that prophecy we find in verse 30. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him <clears throat> from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. What was the final prophecy? The, the one the, the, that he saved for the last? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we understand that this is the culmination of all the prophecies. Look at what Paul writes, the same person who's preaching this sermon. He says in Romans 1.4, and was declared to be the Son of God. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ. He was declared to be the Son of God. No doubts, no argument because He was raised from the dead. Amen? I hope that makes you excited. I want you to understand that without the resurrection, you have no hope in salvation. You have no hope that your sins will ever be looked away from by God. It's only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul lists an evidence here for Jesus' resurrection. There are many evidences. We don't have time to go through those, but Paul lists one here. Take a look at verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And what do we find here? What's his proof? What's his evidence that the resurrection happened? He appeared to over 500 people. He appeared to over 500 people. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And listen to how, he wrote, how, how that's written. Look at verse 31 again. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him, who are what? Now his witnesses. What is Paul saying? If you have any doubt to what I'm saying, go find the witnesses. They're still alive, and they will tell you. Amen? It's proof. And then we have that, uh, then Paul shows next, as he goes through the history here, as he goes through this idea, setting the stage for all these folks sitting in the synagogue, Paul sh then shows that the resurrection, the pro uh, shows through the resurrection, the prophetic promises God made to the fathers has been fulfilled. And we're just going to run through this really quickly. And he goes through here. Look at what he says in verse 33. And th this he has fulfilled to us, their children. He has fulfilled this by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. He's going to say, now the resurrection was predicted. The resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of the one who is going to take away your sins, it was, it was prophesied. In Psalm chapter, he quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 here. And he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Psalm 2 speaks of the reign, and they would have known this, the reign of the anointed king. Paul uses it here to connect uh, the fact that Jesus' resurrection was God's prophesied exaltation of the anointed Messiah. This was God raising Jesus up from the dead, going to take his place. Where is Jesus now? At the right hand of the Father, reigning as the exalted Messiah. Amen? That's what Psalm 2 is saying. And the second promise we see that he gives here is from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. And at verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. This, he's quoting uh, Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And verse 35, therefore he says also another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Here he says, when David raises Jesus up from the dead, he fulfilled the prophecy that David's line would reign forever. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he's never going to be back in the grave. He will live forever, and he will be the Messiah reigning forever from the promised line of David, which was prophesied when? All the way back when David was promised by God that nobody would ever leave his throne. Nobody from his lineage would leave the throne. And then he says... uh, the last is for, comes from Psalm 16. That's uh, in verse 35. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David writes in verse 10 that you will not abandon his soul. David the, had the Messiah in view here, not himself, because David died, but the Messiah. Did Jesus Christ see corruption? Did Jesus Christ see death? Did his body decay? Absolutely not. It was raised whole and physical. Amen. All of these promises and countless others required the resurrection of Jesus Christ for fulfillment. A dead Messiah fulfills nothing. And thus these promises are also powerful Old Testament proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul is coming to his conclusion. And I hope that as we've gone through this, because there's so much that is needed in Jewish background here. Jewish background on the prophecies. Jewish background on how, Jesus, how God uh, brought Jesus through and, and raised up a nation so that uh, Jesus could come through the line of David. All of these things Paul is laying out before his synagogue audience. Jewish men and, uh, and their other God-fearers who are Gentiles. And Paul is coming to his conclusion. He has made the point that Jesus is the point of history. It is only through him that history has any meaning. And he's made the point that Jesus fulfills all the prophecy and that he is the predicted Messiah from the Davidic line. And draw, Paul draws us to this close that Jesus is the justifier of sinners. Amen? Jesus is the justifier of sinners. And this is the most important point of Paul's sermon that we will look at this morning. I don't want anybody here to miss it. The Jewish people were profoundly aware of the ravages of sin and consequences. The Jewish people were profoundly aware of sin. In fact, uh, Solomon, their, uh, their most wise king, wrote this. Okay, for if they sin against you, look at what he says, for there is no one who does not sin. Their own, their wisest king said, there is no one who does no sin And the critical issue for Jewish people was not that they understood sin. The critical issue for the Jewish people was what were they going to do about that sin. And in the Jewish mind, what were they supposed to do with that sin? The most common answer was taught by the Pharisees. They were supposed to handle their sin by rigid external conformity to the law. But they found out that human effort and legalism could not restrain the sinful tendencies. There was not a king who did not sin. There was not a... uh, uh, 
a judge who did not sin. There was not a Jewish man or woman who did not sin. To those who were sitting before him, those were, uh, who were laboring in vain to earn their salvation through keeping the law, Paul dramatically proclaimed the most glorious truth. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you. He's closing here. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, who's this man? Jesus Christ, the one they proved, that all history points to, the one he proved, that all prophecy <coughs> points to, <coughs> forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Amen? He says, the forgiveness of sins, my Jewish brothers and Gentile God-fearers who are sitting here listening to me right now, this man, Jesus, can forgive your sins, the sins that you cannot work enough to get out of. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which could not be freed by the law of Moses. What a burden that Paul was telling them could be lifted from them on that day. You don't have to work for it anymore. You don't have to. All you have to do is see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the promised one from the Davidic line, the one who died and was rose again, never saw corruption. He's the one who has been uh, exalted to the right hand of the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he went through the crucifixion. He died so that you wouldn't have to deal with your own sin. He did. That's the whole point of Paul's sermon the forgiveness offered in Christ free sinners from the sin that the law could not free them. Paul closed the sermon with a warning against rejecting the salvation offered. In Acts 13.40, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets would come about. What are they to be aware of? The judgment of unrepentant, believing, unbelieving sinners. And Paul concludes his sermon. Look how he concludes it. In verse 40, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. And his audience would have understood that that came from Habakkuk, one of their prophets, and that these words were spoken about God's judgment on the com uh, coming judgment on Judea. And God was going to use the wicked Chaldeans as his instrument to bring a severe judgment on wicked Judah. And Paul uses it to dis, uh, illustrate the destruction that the Old Testament pledges to sinners who refuses to repent and submit to the Lord. And I want you to understand, he says, Habakkuk said there's a huge destruction coming from those who are in sin and you can't get away from it. That's what Habakkuk was telling. And his Jewish audience would have understood this. And now he's applying it to those who are sitting in front of him. He says, there is a huge judgment coming, and you will not escape it. And it will be a judgment like the Chaldeans did against Judah when they didn't listen to the Lord. There's a huge judgment coming. <clears throat> and I want you to understand here, the choice with which Paul left his audience is a choice that every person here right now faces. And I need everybody here to understand this. If you don't, didn't track through all of that Jewish stuff that we had to go through, if not all that made sense to you, that's fine. Go back and listen to this sermon five times, okay, when we post it, all right? Then maybe you will. But right now, what I want you to know, understand more than anything else is that Paul left us, his audience, and us now with a choice that ever person faces. Accept the salvation offered in Jesus Christ that brings forgiveness of sins and eternal bliss. A salvation that brings justification, which means I am declared righteous before God to anyone who believes, or reject it and suffer the judgment and eternal damnation. The judgment, like Judah felt, 
when the Chaldeans came in and wiped out the Jewish people. God's grace and love do not cancel His justice and holy hatred of sin. But God's love for us provided Jesus Christ and all of history points to Jesus Christ. All of prophecy points to Jesus Christ and says He is the unique and one person that can save us from our sins. Everyone here this morning faces the same point. Faces the same choice. Where do you stand? You're sitting in the same place that the Jewish listeners were sitting when Paul delivered this sermon to them. You can keep on doing what you're doing, working for your own salvation, trying to live a good life, trying to do all of this, or you can trust in Jesus Christ. The only one, proven by history, proven by prophecies, the only one who can save us from our sin, Jesus Christ. Where do you stand? What, have you made a decision on that choice today? Where do you stand? If you say, I've accepted Je- I, I understand that I need uh, Jesus Christ to uh, get rid of my sin, to justify me before God, and that He died for me, now's the time to just allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to wash over you in joy and in praise and in rejoicing because you are never going to have to worry about your sin again. Or are you still trying to live a good life? Are you trying to do the things that will please God? We have to understand something that will never get it. The Jewish people over and over and over throughout their history showed that they could not live up to the law. They could not do it for thousands of years. They failed every time. And you want to know something? So will we. The only hope that anybody in this room has is to believe in Jesus Christ. The only hope you have of not having the destruction and the, uh, of your life for all of eternity is to believe in the Jesus Christ that Paul presents in this sermon. Let me close by asking you this question. What is the goal, the purpose of the history you are building? What is the goal and purpose of the history you are building right now, each and every day, each and every hour, each and every second? Each of us is building a history right now. Will your history be nothing but a meaningless sense, a series of swiftly flowing years leading to death and separation from God for all of eternity? Or is your history full of purpose that will last for eternity because you understand who Jesus Christ is and that He is the point of all history? I don't want anybody here to sit here and say, man, we've heard this before. This is the fourth sermon that says the same stuff. I want everybody here to reflect back and say throughout the book of Acts over and over and over the gospel is presented in sermons and in statements there are over eight sermons in the gospel of Acts you know what every single one of them are? <laughs> the gospel this is four how many more do we have left? four more how many more times do we have to praise God for the salvation we experience through Jesus Christ? let's never get bored of the gospel Let's never let it just be one of those things that we know. Let's let it bring rejoicing to our lives because we understand Jesus Christ saved us from sin. And if you don't know where you are right now, if you don't understand right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that my history is tied to Jesus Christ, then please talk to me. 
Actually, today, maybe talk to Pastor Adam. All right? Talk to somebody else. All right? Let, allow us to have the chance to show you the freedom that there is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come to You after a difficult passage, a passage that has, is so full of Jewish history and Jewish thought that it's hard for us to grasp. Lord God, I ask and pray that as we went through this sermon, that we would be able to understand and grasp and have assurance that everything that we seek in this sermon points us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the point of history, that Jesus Christ is the point of prophecy, that Jesus Christ is unique, and that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us from our sins. Father, help us to never get bored of that. Help us to never just have this idea that we're saved and I don't have to uh, reflect on the gospel anymore. Help us, Lord God, to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ day in and day out. In Christ's name, amen.